Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages every week. These powerful messages are sure to inspire you and keep you on track. Whether it's our late founder, Pastor Wayman Mitchell, or any of your favorite fellowship leaders worldwide, including Pastors Joe Campbell, Paul Stevens, Mark Olson, Tom Payne, Harold Warner, Richard Ruby, and many more, get ready to hear from God through this message. One, two. Amen. Well, fantastic privilege to be here. And uh, I know the weather wasn't fantastic yesterday, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we really do become incredibly grateful that we have aircon now. Uh, if you remember how hot and sticky it was, no leg room, and uh, it's a great, we've got a real upgrade here. Uh, amen. My appreciation to Pastor Body, as well as Pastor Adam, for the opportunity to be able to minister. If you turn in your Bible to Mark 10, Verse 23 through to 27 is where we're going to be looking at this morning. The hardest metal on the earth is known as tungsten. It's an incredibly tough substance. It is also known as wolfram, which literally means the devourer of tin. It is four times harder than titanium and is used by the military. They use it in bullets, uh, uh, armored piercing rounds, tanks, artillery equipment, uh, and with a melting point of 3,500 degrees, uh, it is one of the most notoriously awkward metals to melt under usual conditions. Until I came across the story of a couple of Russians in a garage. And I was reading through this story, and one of them made a bet with the other. I bet you can't melt it in your garage, and if you can, I'll give you some vodka. And so they, the Russian accepts. He orders some military equipment off of, I don't know, Russian Amazon. He gets it online. He goes to the local railway, and he says to the person, can I have some of the graphite bars? He says, no, I'll give you vodka, and bribes the person. I don't, he's trying to win a bet over vodka, but he had to use vodka to win the bet to win vodka, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. But he gets these graphite bars, and he builds a crucible in his garage. He runs a conductor through it, some large electrical motors, and some other things that I don't really know about. And he manages to reach 3,500 degrees C in a garage and melts tungsten. And I like this story for two reasons. Number one, it is just about as cliched as you can get. Russians playing with military equipment that they got online over a bet to win vodka. The only thing that was missing was they called each other comrades in the process. But the other thing is that it demonstrates there is nothing too hard on this earth that cannot melt in the right hands. Because how many know that is true with God? There is no heart that is too hard that when placed in the hands of God cannot be softened. And in the text that we're going to read, it's just actually after the rich young ruler and that exchange. And Jesus is saying that all things are possible with God, but really in the context, we often would extract that scripture out on our word of the day on Bible apps, but really it's talking about 
hard people, closed people, people who have obstacles in their hearts. So in many ways, Jesus is actually saying all people are possible. And I want to preach a very simple message this morning to kick things off after last night with the primary aim of stirring our faith by the Holy Ghost to have faith for those that perhaps we struggle to believe will ever be saved. I want to preach this morning a sermon entitled, All People Are Possible, from Mark chapter 10, 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. I want to firstly then consider with you impossible people. You know, we all love the times uh, when people just get saved. That from the moment of conversion, uh, you know, it's like the deal has been done. Uh, They just walk in. They're like freebies from God almost. They are the miracle catch conversions. When I was a kid, I went on a holiday in France and I've always liked the idea of fishing without liking fishing. And so we went to a trout farm, and you literally stuck a net in, and there was more trout than water. And you would lift up the net, and you've caught about five fish in three and a half seconds, and that's, that's fishing, by the way. And, uh, but that's what it can be like. Sometimes people just, they walk into church, they get saved, we had no contact beforehand, or maybe we go on outreach, and they're so open and get saved right there and then. And it is good that we believe for such things. Mark 1, 17 and 18 says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It says, And immediately they left their nets and followed. And Mark's account of this story is purposefully very, very brief. Because he's emphasizing here the miracle dimension that they just dropped everything and began to follow. You know, in Newcastle, we have had three people get saved, come into our congregation, get saved, because they found a flyer on the floor. In fact, it's one of our most fruitful outreach strategies. uh, (laughs) We've been tempted to just, you know, wait for a windy day, which is every day in Newcastle, and just, you know, with a prayer and the box of flyers, (laughs) and uh, just, you know, pay the fine for littering, but would probably have revival. But what it shows us is that God is in the business of saving souls beyond just directly what we're doing. God is working in people. We outreach and we know all of these things, but God is doing far more. He's uh, already working on hearts, orchestrating things, bringing people across our paths and churches who are desperate. And wouldn't it be amazing if that was always how it was? Because in our text, there are also people who seem to be the complete opposite. They are the impossible people. Our text follows the rich young ruler. We know the story. He meets with Jesus, but because of an issue with money, he declines the invitation. And Jesus makes this blunt statement in verse 25. He says, It is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is using here this stark and humorous comparison to reveal how difficult it will be for some to receive our message and turn to Jesus. Some suggest that the needle reference was a gate in Jerusalem, but many dispute that. But regardless, it is emphasizing impossibility. To the Jewish mind, the camel was the largest animal that most of them would have ever seen. And the needle, the eye of a needle is obviously, whatever it was, a very small gap. And it seems like some people, they're impossible. Their hearts are just so closed. It is difficult for them to respond. And no doubt that you and I know people And that is exactly the story. We have family members, we have neighbors, we have colleagues, perhaps unsaved spouses. uh, We've witnessed, we've prayed, we've testified, we've headlocked. uh, And it's like something is just stopping them. In our text, it was obviously wealth. He was a rich man. He had a comfortable life. He probably worked a good job. He didn't have a mess, perhaps. He looked like his life was together. And he couldn't see his need for Jesus beyond these issues. But I believe that camel and needle picture need not just apply to money. Because really what the wealth was, was a barrier of the heart that was preventing him from seeing his need for conversion. But there are many things that can do that. False religion, a sense of someone's own success or sense of self-sufficiency. Maybe cultural hindrances that predispose them to be resistant to the message. Maybe they're highly educated or just downright stubborn. We can embrace perhaps this camel and needle picture. Mark 4.12, ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And we can begin to wonder, perhaps you have wondered about those specific people, what would it take for them to get saved, right? What, like, I've tried everything. You know, there have been times, you know, I've witnessed and no doubt you've done the same thing and It's like you've given a flawless exposition of the gospel. You know, like them witnesses, and it's like you've got everything in there. You've got the cross, you've got sin, you've got heaven, you've got hell, you've got timers running out, you've got Jesus returning. You know, you've crammed everything. It's like this is the perfect witness I could have possibly had. And their response is, I'm okay, thanks. (laughs) Sorry, I I haven't haven't got time. And it's, it's almost like we'd be happy if they were angry. Because at least then, you know, something's... Something's happening, but to be indifferent, just like, what else can you say? Right? Well, how much further? Do you wrestle with them? What will it take? They're not seeing something. They're not seeing what we're seeing. It's like something is in the way. So why do some obstinately resist the message of salvation? Well, firstly, it can simply be The stubbornness of the human will. John 3.19 says is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
And in our text, the rich young ruler refused to give up something he wanted in return for salvation. Perhaps it's a particular sin that people want to hold on to. Maybe it's their pride or their image that would have to be sacrificed to turn to Jesus. Perhaps simply it's their time. And as a result now, the heart is hardened to the message. You know, many times I've been asked the question, was it fair that God hardened Pharaoh's heart during the plagues? It's like, people think, did Pharaoh obviously not have a choice in the matter? But yet we forget and we miss that Pharaoh hardened his own heart five times beforehand, resisting because he didn't want to give up something he had for salvation. You know, this is the reason why we pray that obstacles of the heart would be removed. You ever notice one of the strangest things about Christian love? We love our neighbors. We love our brethren. We love sinners. We want to help them. But the moment a sinner's life goes horribly wrong, we quietly rejoice. You ever notice how sadistic that really does come across? You know, you're at the workplace and someone says, uh, how are you? You, know, you say, how are you? I say, oh, I'm terrible. My, my car's just broken down. I say, oh, no, Really? been praying for you. (laughs) Because the hope is, right, if those things are gone, they'd begin to see, right? If the rich young ruler had a financial crash, we think perhaps he'd reconsider the heart would suddenly be open and this blockage which makes it impossible would go. This is why we don't pray that everything goes well for the unsaved and backsliders. Why we don't pray that God would bless them and help them. And I understand we want, you know, we love these people perhaps. uh, But at the same time, we want it to be that whatever's blocking them would be removed uh, that they may see. But running in tandem with that is more than just stubbornness. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ uh, who is the image of God, should shine on them. There is a demonic influence uh, running in tandem. Just as we heard yesterday, there's a spirit. There's something more keeping people blind. You know, salvation is a very good deal. If you think about it just very logically, you've got heaven forever, bliss, joy, everything that you want, or you have hell where you suffer forever. That shouldn't be a difficult decision. Right? That should be very obvious. It's like you've got a decision. You can have a three-course meal cooked by a Michelin star chef. Four if you're hungry. You get steak. You get it cooked to perfection. You get hot chocolate fudge sundae. Or you get celery. (laughs) Not even hummus. And I know that, you know, you might be a a vegan out there, and my deeper sympathies for your loss. But <laughs> the point is, is that these, should, these aren't difficult things, right? It's, and that's obviously a trivial example, but how much more your eternal destination? That should be rather obvious. Uh, heaven forever or suffering and starring in your own horror film, uh, and yet people were still, it's like, no, thank you, I'm fine. Because they can be impossible people. I want to secondly consider with you the impossible God. Because it's very easy when dealing with these 
or trying to work and help impossible people over time, we slowly stop believing for them. We give up on the hard cases, those who resist, who, whose lives aren't falling apart, the wealthy, the Muslim, the elderly. And unlike our text, there are people we've tried to witness to, they don't even walk away sorrowfully. They're just completely uninterested. Uh, Perhaps we've even felt the words of Peter in verse 26 when he said, who then can be saved? There have been times in my own ministry and I've begun to wonder, it's like I can't pay people to come. It's like, what will it take to, to get people to respond to the gospel? And in that place, we easily can grow frustrated. We grow discouraged. We blame the method and believe that's the issue. But the danger in that place that's so easy to get to, our faith determines our experience. Jesus said, let it, according to your faith, let it be unto you. Literally, we get what we believe for. So when our faith is being hurt by those who are resistant and continually refusing the offer, our faith can descend into this state that communicates and accepts they can't be saved. Or in other words, they will never be saved. And I know I'm not saying that the reason certain people aren't saved is we just don't have enough faith and it kind of crosses into that mindset. Even the rich young ruler walked away. We know that. However, faith in conversion makes a massive difference. When the 12 spies, they visited the promised land, they saw all the reasons it couldn't happen, and it didn't happen. They got what they were believing for. Pastor Greg tells a story of a woman in one of his churches that he'd pioneered somewhere, and she says that the story goes that the the, the dad was a diehard Catholic and uh, said very matter-of-factly, I know that my dad is going to burn in hell. Just, just said it because of his Catholicism, because of different things. He wasn't interested. And he said, but the strange thing was the same person then went into the prayer room and was praying for her dad. But he said, the issue was you've already settled the issue within. There's no faith there anymore. We can pray, but there's no real belief that anything can change. So we have to challenge our perspective from time to time. Do we really have faith when it comes to conversion? Because many times we actually confuse faith with need. And this can be where we get into this hole. Because we say, I have faith for the addict. I have faith for the broken and the drunk. And I can see why they would get saved. Perhaps you've said those words and there's a place for that. You know, when I was first saved, I was very broken. I was very needy. Uh, I I didn't know what my name was. I had all kinds of issues that were going on within me. But we must ask the question, is that mentality really faith? Or are we calculating people's chances of conversion based upon the needs we can see? Our faith gets watered down to actually what is simply a level of natural likelihood based on preconceptions and past experiences. And as a result, we struggle to see those without obvious needs saved. Because remember, we're looking at need. I can see them getting saved. I can see them getting saved. 
But when there's no obvious needs, we think, oh, I don't know how they can be saved because actually it's faith. It's not faith, it's need. In our text, I will confess, I always used to believe this scripture was incredibly negative about certain people's salvation. The way that I have always read this for the last 10 years of being saved, uh, Jesus was simply saying, guys, uh, letting you know, some people are just too stubborn. Some, they're just not going to happen. Camel, eye of the needle, guys. Uh, just move on. It's, it's not going to work with some. And I never knew why I didn't notice this, but it's actually a very encouraging scripture. It's actually very helpful and the complete opposite of what certainly I was reading of this. The disciples essentially say, well, who then can be saved? And in the context, people like the rich young ruler, people who've got it together, people who don't look so obvious, how on earth can these impossible people ever be converted? Verse 27 as obvious as this may be for you, it wasn't for me. So you're a far more spiritual person than I am. Verse 26 of the Philips says, uh, Jesus looked straight at them and he said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Because that is the issue. We focus too much on the hardness of the individual rather than the power of God. We look at their lives They're not needy. They have money. Maybe they're not visibly broken. They've refused before. And so our faith gets colored by their indifference. The purpose of this scripture is not to say how difficult they are, but how difficult they are without the intervention of God doing something in their heart. But actually, this roots us back to the fundamental truth Our faith is essential in the conversion of whoever it may be. It may not be that they are as obviously broken, but it still requires faith to see a miracle in the heart. It still requires something more than just meeting a need. From the pauper to the prince, it all involves a miracle. You know, not all brokenness is on the surface. We had some neighbors of ours who just bought a house. They were high-profile individuals. They were high up in uh, computing, uh, programming, I believe. Uh, We had them over to our house, and we just got talking, and my testimony came up. uh, And they both opened up about how they're desperate because they're literally trapped with OCD and anxiety. You wouldn't have no idea. And whilst that is true and worth remembering... On a deeper level, do we believe that every man's greatest need is not freedom from addiction? That every man's greatest need is not to get out of poverty? Those are good things. Every man's greatest need is not those things, but to have their sins forgiven. And I know it's a cliched statement, but not everyone has a hole in their arm, but everyone does have a hole in their heart. And that need is universal. That issue covers every person. 2 Kings 5.1, now Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. He goes on to say he was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Because the hope is this morning, there are many people in the Bible where God somehow squeezed their camelness through the needle of conversion. Remember, our scripture is dealing with the rich, specifically the rich young ruler. 
But if we think that faith, or sorry, wealth is just really one of many stubborn issues in the heart that keeps people bound, and if we take that obstacle and we apply it to the obstacles that we are wrestling with, Zacchaeus was very wealthy and he got saved. Joseph of Arimathea was a believer. Cornelius was converted. It was likely that Barnabas supported Paul financially because he was a landowner or sold property. Whenever the New Testament church held services in someone's house, who owned the house? Do we really think that a slave says, hey, master, do you mind if I just put 30 strange people in your living room? And have a service every week. It is very possible that actually they would have owned property. Every single one of those fit into this needle and camel picture and yet they were still saved. Perhaps they're people that today that we would look at because we look at the need and we say they won't be interested. Jesus says, I can fit camels through needles. I can squeeze them. I can, I don't know, like octopus kind of stick them through the needle or something. Those you think cannot be saved can be saved. Why can't your boss be converted? It would probably make your life a little bit easier, wouldn't it? That unsaved spouse, uh, maybe that indifferent family member, that neighbor who was constantly, I will not go to church, that idolatrous culture. In the recent Trumpet magazine, uh, I was reading about Pakistan which is the second largest Muslim nation on the planet. Uh, And one of our churches crossed the border from India and held a healing crusade uh, where hundreds of primarily Muslims came, uh, got saved and healed. This is a Muslim stronghold uh, because Jesus said those words, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things or all people are possible. I want to finally then consider with you the impossible mission. Why did Jesus bring this revelation? Why did this conversation happen? Why does that matter to us today? Because knowing the power of an impossible God is essential to your and my fruitfulness. Immediately after the text, Jesus makes a statement about the disciples' past But really, it was prophetic about their future as well. Verse 29, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. And we know that they would have left things in order to follow Jesus To begin with, however, I believe it's more forward-reaching than that because they were going to evangelize. They were going to go on the streets into cities and communities for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus is speaking this entire discourse because he's equipping them with revelation. He's saying you'll struggle on outreach. You'll struggle being sent out. You'll struggle being a missionary without a revelation of what God is able to do. Pastor Greg Mitchell's been asked the question, what makes the most fruitful pioneers? And he's never said preaching ability. He didn't say how articulate they are, but he said it is those who have a healthy view of what God is able to do. Maybe you're here and just over the last 
It's been two years now since we had a physical harvesters and we've had lockdown and COVID and all these different things. And it's been harder and many of us has been fantastic. But at the same time, maybe you've begun to conclude like the disciples who can be saved. Jesus wanted to ignite their faith to believe. And that's exactly what his heart is to do for you and I today. You know, we sing that song, Be Magnified. We sing, I have made you too small in my eyes. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Be magnified. There is nothing you can't do. Oh, Lord, my eyes are on you. Be magnified, oh, Lord. Be magnified. So what should that revelation drive us to do concerning impossible people? Well, firstly, it should inspire us to pray. Because prayer is what connects impossible people to an impossible God. Arthur Matthew says everything in prayer depends on God. But he would also have us realize that much also depends on us. We have a responsibility of those who've received the message gladly to bring them by name before the throne of mercy. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. But actually a more accurate translation or wording of that scripture is keep on asking, keep on seeking and keep on knocking about those people and things can change. We need to pray against those things that are blocking their salvation. Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Before God, binding obstacles, where covetousness or pride or indifference and praying, God, let there be faith released. Let there be eyes that would be open to the gospel. 2 Kings 6.17, and Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know, I can guarantee that when you're thinking about those people, that's what they need, that their eyes would see the glorious things of God. There's something that was always there, but there's a cataract, there's a blockage, there's an indifference that they would see. But the second thing that this revelation will give us is it will inspire us to go. Again, verse 29. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who is left, and then it carries on lands for my sake and the gospels. You know, God wants to save all kinds of people into our churches. I believe for those who are in poverty to those who are in prosperity because God wants all to be saved and he wants to give us the good fruit from all walks of life and culture because a miracle is a miracle when it comes to God. If I was to borrow something Pastor Greg says, he puts it very well. When we think about really what pioneering is or going out, what would it take to convince someone that they're, you go on the streets, you're having a conversation with a stranger You then tell them that everything they've ever known is completely wrong. You then invite them to a small community center that smells funny, to be with the people who may also smell funny. Praise and worship probably sucks, and the pastor can barely preach very well. 
The kids are screaming because we don't have a nursery yet. We then tell people how to live according to a 2,000-year-old book at the same time the microphone is feeding back and our cheap banner that's held up with sellotape falls off the wall. And then we tell them, hey, and we're going to change the whole world. (laughs) Can I tell you, it takes a miracle to get anyone there. Anyone. I reckon that all walks of life walk into some of our churches and go, what the heck is this? But that's what faith makes possible. And if we see it through that revelation, through that lens of not just, oh, I think they won't mind coming to church, but actually God wants to meet with them powerfully, that somehow God would blind their eyes to all of the problems and be quite happy serving God in our churches, I think we would see great results and great change. Because an impossible mission is made possible when you and I have the backing of an impossible God. There's another testimony in the Trumpet magazine of one of our churches in India who are out street preaching. And someone says, we really like what you're doing. Can you do it in our village? And it was a Hindu village. And so this was a sinner. This was an unbeliever who invites them into their village. They say, yeah, we'll go. This is in our fellowship And they turn up and they've set up the concert inside of a Hindu temple. You've got idols everywhere. You know, thousands of them. They just make them up. And so they're putting all of these things and they start playing acoustic music about Jesus. And tons of people come and they said, we want it. We like it so much. Put it through the speakers. And they plug them into the speakers that were there for Hindu chants throughout the day. They've been uh, speaking about uh, all kind of Krishna or whatever it may be, uh, and they're blaring these out every day. But in that place, in a Hindu temple, surrounded by idols, uh, on the speakers used for Hindu chants, they begin to preach about Jesus, uh, and tons get saved. They pull a healing altar, and they begin to see the sick healed right there. See, in closing, Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. That was 30 miles out of the way. It was in the north. It was quite a stretch from anything else they were doing. And he takes them to a unique location. There's a cave there where water from the Jordan kind of pours out, kind of a bit like, like it recycles, and it's viewed in those times as a bottomless pit of moving water. It's quite an odd landscape that's there. And because of these strange natural qualities, it became a place of superstition, it became a place of religion. And they saw this cave with the moving water at Caesarea Philippi as a gate to the underworld, quite literally the gates of hell. In that place, the Greeks built a temple to the half-man, half-goat idol Pan, which is the typical image that the Satanists use. They would perform sexual acts as part of their worship on this location. There was also a temple to Zeus. In 19 BC, the Romans built a temple to Caesar because he saw himself as a god. There was already a temple to Baal there where they would sacrifice children. All of this is happening in this same place in Caesarea Philippi where this location is. It was about eight idolatrous sites. It was a mess. Jesus deliberately took his disciples 30 miles out to see the most ungodly display possible. They're looking at all of these temples that were still there then. 
There's the altar of sex. There's the altar of money. There's the altar of self and self-worship. All the things we would say that make a closed heart. And it was right there, what was the words that Jesus said? What did he say at Caesarea Philippi? With all of these, that's where he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of the underworld, will not prevail. But he also asked them a question just before that. He said, who do you say that I am? And that is the question he asks us today. You see people who are sold out at the altar of money. People that we're working with sold out at the altar of comfort or false religion. Or like uh, Caesar, sold out at the temple of self-worship. He says, do you believe that I'm bigger? Who do you say that I am? Do you believe I can build a church out of those people? Would you believe that an impossible God can open impossible hearts and bring revival to our impossible mission? We have a job to do, but we must do it with faith, confident that God can open the hardest, the coldest, and the camelest of hearts. Before we quickly move on, we've got a couple of minutes uh, I want us to pray. Maybe there are people that you have in your life, and it's the, they're just stubborn as anything. They're people you know, that you've been praying for years, perhaps. So we're going to believe God again. We're going to continue to have faith. And so if that's you, I want you to stand up, and we're going to pray. You have people that are stubborn and are just resisting the gospel time and time again. It's like, what will it take? Right, I want us to say these words. Say, Heavenly Father, I bring before you Now, I want you to say their name. Name them before God. Now say, I know they're stubborn. They're indifferent. They're resistant. Time and time again. But I believe you are bigger than their stubbornness. And in your hands, the hardest of hearts can be melted. You can do the impossible. And I bind their stubbornness. And I loosen faith. Eyes that can see. I'm asking for their salvation. And a miracle in their hearts. That only you can do. I set my eyes. Not on their indifference. But upon the power of God. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's give him a praise today. Thank you, Jesus. for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.